Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl, your host as always. And today we are joined by Chris Martinez, an entrepreneur, speaker, author of the book, Never Wear Pants Again, and founder of Dude Agency, a company specializing in helping digital marketing agencies with people, processes, profitability, and education, so they can take on more projects and scale profitably, ideally to 5 million plus. Chris's company has won a Gold Stevie Award from the American Business Association and also a Silver Stevie Award for most innovative companies under 100 employees. I've asked him to join us here today to talk about people, processes, and getting things done. Chris, how are you doing, my friend? What is up? Thank you What's for that up? very kind intro. Uh, just so we never know if we're going to meet on the mat, so I got to be polite until I know I can joke you out. <laughs> then, I'm still injured. You'll definitely kick my ass. <laughs> What you're doing is fantastic. It's nice to win awards. It's nice to be able to help people increase their income and imp impact on the world. But how did you even get started in this? Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Is this your no, first business? Yeah. I do not come from a family of entrepreneurs. So how far back do you want me to go? Let's start at the beginning. Okay. I was born on a cold January night. No, <laughs> no, I grew up. I was not really interested in technology. I wasn't one of those kids who started programming when they were just five years old. I was really into sports. I, I loved playing soccer. And I always knew that I wanted to have a business. I, I don't know where that idea really came from. Mm -hmm. I did have one uncle who had invented some thing that he sold to the Edison Electric Company in California in the 60s. And he was like a millionaire. I think he sold his company for like around $8 million in 1960 something. So yes. he was set for life from that. But he was like my only role model uh, for entrepreneurship. No, I take that back. He was my role model for entrepreneurship. My dad did. My dad was an engineer. He did go out on his own and started an engineering company, which he ran for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. But he didn't like the business side of it. He loved being an engineer. Uh, mm. And then I have a, a family friend who still one of my mentors and, and closest friends, Brian, who started a construction rental business. And okay. he was the one who always had the fancy car. Like he always had a Corvette, a red Corvette. And he built that business and Brian's worth lots and lots of money now. He's since that's sold like, that business. It's like a construction equipment rental company. Equipment rental. Yeah. So there was a okay. thing, lots of money in that if you've never yep. looked at it before. So those were like my role models. But I, I, I we mentioned this when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago, but I have a very kind of like untraditional or non-traditional path toward entrepreneurship. Because when I grew up, I was like a hoodlum when I was a kid. This mm -hmm. is the early 90s. And so I had a lot of problems in my it was a really hard childhood for me. And so I gravitated toward these, towards these bad kids because it was like my safe zone where I wasn't getting my ass kicked. Yep. Yep. And so then we lashed out and, and we were like bad kids. 
So this is like when gangster rap was really popular. And so we wanted to be little gangbangers. And I was in LA, like my best friend, when we were in eighth grade, he actually did get jumped into a gang. I don't even know if you know what that means because you're Canadian. <laughs> no, you get beat up. You get beat up. It's your initiation. You're, yeah, exactly. It's your initiation. It's different. Yeah. That's right. So he got jumped into this clique that was Bloods. And I was very much around that growing up. And then one day, all those kids got kicked out of school. I was like the only one who didn't get kicked out of school for smoking weed. We were 14 years old. So like back then, I thought I was a tough shit. Uh, but now I look at 14 year olds and they're infants. Yeah. So long story short, all those kids got kicked out of school. I didn't get kicked out of school. All those kids ended up disappearing. And then I had soccer to really keep me on the straight and narrow path. And then I ended up going to college and then graduated from college in 2003. Yeah, I'm trying to do the math because it's been a long time. 2003, got a job in sales, started my first business right after my dad died in 2007. He had cancer. He died in pancreatic cancer within a month. And then that business failed miserably and I lost everything. That's one of those stories where I literally couldn't pull any money out of my bank account. Got a job and then just by chance started learning how to build WordPress websites because I had this idea and I... A friend of mine's girlfriend at the time, he had a WordPress site. And if you remember back in the day, all WordPress sites had the sidebar. And at the bottom, it would say not powered by WordPress, but it would say something like WordPress. And then there was like a little search bar. So I was like, I asked him, I was like, what is this WordPress thing? He's ah, you can build it, do it yourself. And I was like, pissed. I'm like, dude, why don't you just fucking help me? And then he was like, no, you need to learn it on your own. So then I Googled it and I basically spent a weekend learning how to build my first website on my own. And I was like on the line with HostGator support, like probably 50 times. <laughs> but I built my first website using a theme. I can't even remember. It's probably the Hello theme. And I was so proud of it. And then I started building more websites for myself. And then I got into digital, like learning how to run traffic. I hired Russell Brunson's company at the time. They had a coaching program called Dotcom Secrets. So I was yep. paying him 500 bucks a month. To, or his company to, to teach me how to drive traffic, which none of the things that they applied today or work today, but mm. it was my first kind of intro into what does it mean to, have, to, to use digital marketing to try and generate leads. And then that led to me, eventually I started working for Reach Local, which did PPC management. I got a job there that led to another at Reach Local actually is when I started the agency. So we're fast forwarding all the way to 2012. And I started this agency. I was moonlighting at the time, working my day job and then running the agency in my off hours when in reality, I was running the agency the whole time. And I had this little team in the Philippines. So I partnered with a guy. He had a couple people in the Philippines. And so that was my fulfillment team, essentially. And keep in mind, this whole time while I'm doing, doing, starting the agency, I'm still paying off debt from my failed business. It was a soccer magazine. I made every mistake that a human being could possibly make. So I launched this business from like less than, I had less than nothing to my name. (laughs) I was in debt. I was very motivated to try and make this work. And so then fast forward 2013, I started doing the business full time and still scraping by trying to survive. And 2015, I decided, you know what? I love my Philippines team, but the time zone was killing me because on the West coast, it's about 15 hours of big difference. So I was working 6 a.m. to 1 a.m. every day for about two years. 
And I, the team was great, but there was just some challenges with the culture and the language. And then more so was the yep. time. So by this time, 2015, I'm living in San Diego and I'm thinking I can build a team down in Tijuana, Mexico, which is just 20 minutes south of downtown San Diego. Uh-huh. So I, and I don't speak Spanish very well. So I'm like, okay, so I can go down there. I basically find a couple people to start working with me. And that was a game changer for my agency. We ended up going from like 50, 60 clients on retainer to over 220 on retainer at our peak. Wow. And it was awesome because it was same time zone. I had a little office there. I was driving down across the border every day to go to my little office. And I built this little agency. And so then fast forward now to 2017. And I had been preaching Tijuana, Mexico to every agency owner that I knew. You got to build a team down there. You got to build a team down there. And nobody could do it. It's actually very difficult to set up a company in Mexico if if you're an American citizen. And I'm an American citizen, but I had a a former business partner help me set up the company. So then I was like, you know what? I wonder if I can help other agency owners get access to this hidden talent pool. And actually what sparked that idea, I had listened to an interview of Russ Perry, who started Design Pickle. I don't know if Russ or Design Pickle. I know Design Pickle. Okay. Russ Perry started started Design Pickle. So I, I learned about Design Pickle. I heard Russ's story. I'm like, I could totally do unlimited design and development for agencies using my team in Mexico. So launched Dude. We started running some Facebook ads. We got some traffic. We got some leads. We got some customers. And I grew Dude to a six-figure run rate very fast, like probably four months. We were over 10K monthly recurring revenue, which isn't a ton, but it proved the concept. Yep. And so then we got a booth at the Trafficking Conversion Summit in 2018, and then it just took off. We got Mm. a lot of business from that conference, and we've just been growing ever since. 2019, I should say 2020 was like a breakout year for us again, because I bought out another partner. And But at the time, when we went into 2020, we were doing about 800,000 in revenue, but we were not profitable at all. And I still wasn't making very good money. So then I brought my wife into the business. She straightened out the finances. We got rid of this partner who wasn't really doing anything. And then COVID hit and we lost 18% of our revenue. I had no money in the bank account because we started paying off our former partner as part of his buyout. Yep. And we just, we scraped it out. Like we were able to figure out a way to keep the business going. And luckily March, we cut every expense we could possibly cut. We reduced our staff. And April, all that business that we lost, almost all of it came back. And then May, it just like rocket ship growth. We ended up finishing 2020 over a million and we were very profitable over 20% net income. And I had grown my income, which was nice. And I've just been charging ever since. And um, yeah, so it's a... I don't know if you want to call it a rags to riches story. It's been a fucking journey, man. (laughs) it's been crazy there's definitely some battles in there so what do you feel were some of the greatest now, obviously you kind of already highlighted that there but looking back what for you were the biggest challenges or lessons that you felt like you had to learn or overcome I mean, that's a loaded question i'm sure but as what i believe is that as you progress on your entrepreneurial journey you discover things that you need to develop within yourself that you didn't even know you needed. There's different Uh phases that you go through 
And essentially you have to reinvent yourself in many ways. So when I started the business, I hated the idea of hiring people. Like I, I, and this is not (laughs) something that I'm proud of. I always thought pigheadedly, I'm a genius. Everybody else is dumb. Why can't everybody just be like me? I wish I could clone myself 50 times over and I'd be a millionaire. Very bad management, management philosophy in general. And no wonder I had problems with my staff because I went into it with the wrong mindset. So then as I started to grow the team, And I started to get mentorship from people who have done or done things that I wanted to do. I started to recognize how stupid I was being and how I was essentially sabotaging my own success. And I had to do a lot of self-reflection and start to fix problems within me. And I tell this to all my clients because we do coaching for our agency owners as well, is the business is a reflection of you. So if you are unorganized, there's probably a lot of disorganization inside of your company. If you aren't disciplined, that's probably going to be reflected in the business as well. Yeah. And it's not always true, but many times it is true. And I always have to take a hard look at myself. And if something's not going well, what am I doing? I have to ask myself, what am I doing that's leading to this specific outcome? That's kind of been some of the biggest revelations. It's just Honestly, just killing your, trying to kill your ego and being humble and then doing your best to support your staff. Like my management philosophy now is we find the best people on earth. So we're super, super stringent about who we hire. And then my, one of my responsibilities is to make sure that they have the tools to be successful and then just get the hell out of their way and allow them to do the amazing things that I hire them to do. Because God knows prior to me having this management revelation, I was like preventing these people from doing a great job. Yeah, so, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. <clears throat> Definitely getting in my own way. So I don't know. I, I don't know if you were looking for multiple answers, but to me, that's the one that kind of sums up all of my challenges and like the biggest breakthroughs that I've had have come from me recognizing the deficiencies that I have in myself. Yeah, I agree. Alex Harmanzi talks about a lot. I really like his stuff lately. He talks a lot about character and skills. It all just comes down to character traits and skills. And like you said, like figuring out what skill am I lacking that is preventing my business from growing or what character traits do I not have or what character trait do I have that's putting a cap on this? Because it's almost like when you have a market, when you have product market fit, it's like the market wants more of what you got. And it's almost like a reverse where people are like, how do I get more business when it's almost the opposite where it's like, how do you get out of your own way and just let it happen in a sense? I don't know if that's the right. Absolutely. The Um, best part of that, I've been listening to a lot of Alex's stuff as well. And I read his book. The best part of that is that you have access to so much information, so much knowledge. And this is what I do personally. If I feel like I am lacking on sales, for example. I'll go out and I'll find a sales book. If I feel like I'm lacking on marketing, I'll go and find a marketing book. If I feel like I'm lacking on leadership or like last year, I remember feeling like my team wasn't implementing fast enough or like they weren't taking the concepts and creating solutions on their own. They were relying on me too much. 
I would look at a leadership book. I would look at a, I would read a communication book. I would, so anything that I'm lacking, I will immediately go and invest in a book because that's like the easiest way because I have my Audible account. So I would just get an, a book on Audible and then learn about that topic. And I'm just trying to find one thing, one gem, just that's one, one gem. gem that's going to move the needle just a f- one degree. That's it. And then everything else gets set in motion and then we can get through that obstacle. That's right. So I, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. Compound interest. That's the other thing. It's not, I love that you said that. Cause I know some people, I'm not going to say any names cause they might be listening, but I know some people where they don't like picking up books that they can't finish it. And I'm like, dude, just read a chapter. You just, you don't need the whole book. Most books are too much fluff. Anyhow, you just need the one gem. Just keep stacking those wins. Exactly. I love that. It's like saying you don't want to go to the, you don't want to go to the gym because you're not going to lose 20 pounds the day you step foot in the gym or you're not going to get your black belt the day you step on the mats. You have to get your ass choked out a lot before you can become an expert. Yeah. Yeah. I love that so much. So what would you recommend? You can give a tip right there, but if someone's listening to this, if they're struggling or they're just getting started, what would you recommend that they do? Are we talking about a specific industry? Or just anything in general? Oh, someone's listening to this call. They're, they think that they've got a problem and they're trying to find a way out of it and they're feeling like they're stuck. That's a very good question. And we're getting now into the philosophical part of my brain. I would say the first thing that you got to do is figure out what is it that you really want, right? Are you doing this? Are you trying to dive into this new venture? or this business, you want to solve this business problem because it's going to allegedly make you feel better? Is it going to give you more, is it going to make you feel more valuable as a human, as a man, as a woman? Is it going to, if you are financially successful with this, or is it going to allow you to have more free time with your kids, with your family? Is it going to give you the lifestyle? I think you just got to be really clear as to why you want to get into business. So I'm speaking specifically to entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship has become kind of like the hip, cool thing to do. This is not for everybody. No. I would say it's for less than 10% of the population. Yeah. So nine out of 10 people on this planet, let's just call it, I don't know the exact stats, but let's just call it 6 billion out of 7 billion people are not cut out to be an entrepreneur. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. It's okay. Getting into it and continuing with it when it's not really your strong suit is a waste of life. You can make so, this is, okay. So I see this all the time in the agency space where you have all these people who started digital marketing agencies over the past five years. And they got a course from some freaking scam artist who tells them like, you're going to be an internet millionaire and have the Lamborghini like me and blah, 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 blah. And they just keep plugging away at this over and over. They're ripping off customers. They're not happy. They're not making good money. Their spouses are telling them to go get a job. They're not good at anything other than maybe like one aspect of the technical side. And they're just wasting time. Whereas like you could go get a really good job. Let's say you're really good at running ads, right? If you're really good at running ads and you suck at all the other business side of it, you suck at sales, you suck at project management, you suck at customer experience, you suck at finance, you suck at all these other things, but you're really good at running ads. You can go get a job running ads right now for about $150,000 a year. 
which is good income. Benefit. Get weekends you... off, benefits. Yeah, go do that. Yeah, you're gonna be way happier. Yeah, don't try and force a square peg into a round hole. Yep. You know, so this goes back to my original thing: is like, why do you want to do this? Is it because it's a part of your soul? Like me as an entrepreneur, this is just, this is who I am. This is how I'm built. And if this business that I have right now, if dude were to fail tomorrow, I'd go out and I'd start something else and yep. I'd start something else and I would find a way to win. Yep. Like I've always approached my business the same way that I've approached sports and jujitsu, <laughs> which mm -hmm. doesn't always work out well for me physically, but I've always been willing to die for a win. I'm willing to die for a win. Can you say the same? I have faced actual danger running my company <laughs> and I'm willing to die for the win. That's just the way that I am. That's the way that I'm built. That's the way that I've lived my entire life since I was a kid. I was always the first one in the scrap. And that's how it's going to be to the day that I die. And I, that's the way that I like to live. And that's why I know, like, I've always had the internal confidence, even when I was at my lowest point, when I had nothing, when I had nobody, I knew that I would be able to figure out a way to win. I knew that I could survive off nothing. Mm. Like me and the 99 cent store were very good friends from the <laughs> year, between the years of 2007 and 2012. Yeah, I can stretch Japan, a dollar. If you're in Japan, even better. That you can furnish your house at the 99 yen store, the 99 yen store. In Japan, that's where the best stuff comes from. But yeah, keep going, keep going. That's awesome. Yeah. So I've been, and of course, I've had many privileges. I've been very blessed in my life, but I've also been down. I had my car repossessed. All mm. the things that you hear about with the, the sad stories, take that and multiply it by a couple. And so that's like why I'm like, what else are you going to do? It's like <laughs> in Eminem and Eight Mile, where he goes up there and he just starts talking shit in yep. a rap battle about all the things that the other guy could possibly say. It's, that's how I go through life. It's okay. What else are you going to do? What else can you throw at me that I can't handle? Come at me, bro. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that like being an entrepreneur for me is part of my soul. It's part of how I was designed as a human being. And if that's not a part of you, then I don't really think that you should be starting a business. Or maybe you can be an investor in a business. Maybe there's another way that you can enjoy the entrepreneurial journey without having to actually start a business from the ground up. Yeah, there's a that's lot of another way where you can need a team. Yeah, you can still fulfill your dream and you can get a taste of the excitement of running an entre of being an entre entrepreneur without actually having to do the work yourself. There's other ways to do it. But I think that if you're going to do it, you got to really understand who you are as a human being. And decide if I don't do this, a part of my soul will die. <laughs> That's a good tip. That's a good tip. Sorry, I'm a writer downer. So no, good. We're going deep here. <laughs> I agree. So I spent for people that haven't heard, because this is a fairly new development. I've been doing this podcast on and off for six, seven years. And sometimes I'm really on it. And we're publishing a couple episodes a week. And then sometimes I'm off and it's one episode a month. But I spent 50 grand on research to figure out what are the critical success factors for business. And we found, we found nine factors, but the ninth one is not really realistic. Anyone can influence on their own, which is government economic conditions. But even if the government and the economy is against you, you still can only really focus on these eight categories. And the first one is self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot what you're really speaking to in the sense of you are built the way that you have no other option to other than this. Like you are so 
the way you're built, the way you run is like a clock. Like it's not just self-efficacy, but the way you're driven, what your rewards, your reward system, your belief system, all that is built into this is my path. This is the way I got to go. And so self-efficacy is the first one. Because if you wake up in the day, if you're so easily distracted, that's the other part. If you can be like, if you, that's when leadership, communication, negotiation skills, teamwork skills, that all goes under self-efficacy. That's the first factor. And that's where a lot of companies die. Especially you said you look for the best people on earth. You're looking for very effective people that show up, do the job, but also know how to do what they're supposed to do. And that's yep. a huge part because if that's not in place, everything else turns to mashed potatoes. The next well, there, can I just, oh. I want to add something into that one, Daryl, because sure. this is very applicable to digital agencies as well as just anybody who's employing technical people is the one, the main reason why people don't get employed by our company is that they do not inherently care about the well-being of other people. They aren't willing to sacrifice for the good of the team. And that's something that we screen for in our interview process. And I think part of it is just the nature of people that want to become programmers and developers is they love just sitting at the computer and not interacting with other people, mm. which is okay. And I'm stereotyping, so I apologize if I'm offending anybody. But at the same time, we operate in a team environment and we've got clients that are relying on us and their clients are relying on them. So if you have an individual who doesn't care that all these people are relying on you. And that's yeah. when you have instances where the team member is missing deadlines and they just disappear and they just shrug their shoulders. And this is this, it is what it is. Yeah. And you can't have that when building an effective team. So I would say that's the one big thing that everybody needs to look for when hiring, especially technical people, but all people in general is, are they willing to sacrifice for the good of the team? I love that. I think that's true because that's a huge thing when you have ap like apathetic employees that just don't really mm -hmm. give, especially when they come and they have that sense of entitlement. That's oh, part yeah. We talked about this in the meeting group before we decided agreed to do this interview. I, I'm in the Philippines right now. The time is recording. I came here. I felt your pain. Like it hit me hard when you were talking about how the time zone is brutal. It is yeah. brutal. But I came here because I was hiring. I had a girl I was paying her two bucks an hour and I asked her what she wanted and I paid her what she asked for. So it's not like I was trying to lowball anybody. But I had hired two college kids and I think I was paying one like 12 bucks an hour and the other one 16 bucks an hour. And she was crushing both of them. Yep. And I just and I remember the one was getting 16 bucks an hour. I wanted 25 or something like that. And I just remember like, like this woman's got kids like and you guys are just some um, like entitled snotty brats that I, mm -hmm. I get it. Like, I want I'm running a business because I want to make bank, too. But. I'm just like looking at the two and one day notice you're going to take a few days off or take a long weekend. Whereas this woman is showing up early, leaving late. She's got kids. She's working for two bucks an hour and she's doing the job. The two of you are. And in my head, I was just like, if this is what globalization is, man, my culture is in trouble. And I felt like that for a long time. Like people don't get the tsunami that's coming in the sense of you got seven people living in a house and they're doing that to pool resources because like their family's been through some real shit. And yeah. they're willing to work. And I had a buddy, I remember in Canada, he was complaining about all these Indian immigrants. And he was saying something like that. He's like, he's in Alberta. And he was like, everywhere you go, there's Indian immigrants. They live seven people to a house. And I was like, bro, what you need to realize is they're willing to do that in Canada. Where are they coming from? What is on the other side of the border, bro? And if you, if yeah. instead of complaining, you better understand, you better understand and you better get in the race. That's like, you, yeah. instead of complaining about it. And that's this, it's this, I've arrived somewhere. 
And now I'm sitting in this chair and I like, I'm all about meritocracies and I'm going to get off the soapbox in a minute. No, but keep I talking. Love- Cause I'm going to, I want to chime in too. <laughs> I'm even when it works against me, even when I'm the guy that I'm in the middle of the pack or lower bottom of the pack at a jujitsu club and I get choked out, I still want to be at a club where the best guys are the ones that are highest belts. I don't want to be at a club where a white belt is tapping black belts. You know what I mean? <laughs> that that doesn't make sense to me, but that's what happens in the real world because so many people are able to hide behind these status games and these monkey tribe games where they get a seat of a position of power. And then their job is protecting that position versus actually being good at what they do. And I think that's really part of what some of the problem is in the world today, just generally speaking, it's that we really have to kind of go back to what, how do like KPIs, like how do we measure success? What does success look like in terms of skills, output, achievement, and then have a real discussion and a real transparent conversation about this and a real look, hard look at ourselves. And that's even what I was love what you're saying about at the beginning. I'm not perfect. And I definitely have flaws in my business and what I'm doing. But I just love that you mentioned that, like, it's really on me. There's no victim mentality here. It's right. It's about, it's about what do I need to do? Because it's a meritocracy. What am I, right? Where do I lack in my own merit and my own values, my own skills, my character that's preventing me? Because it's, we live in a reality-based world. As much as we want to manifest things and all this stuff, like there's physical properties. If a bus is coming down the road and you're in the middle of the road, there's some real physical realities you have to respect and appreciate. And it's the same thing, anything else. If you're hungry, you plan on growing some food. There's some real physical and time aspects to this. And the same way I think that meritocracy is just the ultimate in the sense of if we have a real transparent view. Anyways, that's the soapbox I'm on. But just when you're talking about that, when you have staff, it just sounds like that. If you have staff that are very self-centered, they're very apathetic, they're all in themselves, what can I get? They're just detached from how the company exists. A company is just a group of people who solve the pain of another group of people and they do it with a product or service. That's it. Exactly. And if you don't, if you don't give a shit, then you're a parasite. You're not there because you don't, you're so detached. You don't understand. You don't care if the clients are, what are the clients like? That's how you're getting fed, bro. So that's what's feeding you. And so I love that. I love that you brought that up. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Actually, I talk about this a little bit in my book too, because I, I studied sociology in college. And living in Mexico for the past four years doing and doing business here for what seven years, I've been really able mm-hmm. to put on my sociologist hat and look at the differences between the cultures. And then it also gives me a different perspective of American culture, certain things that we just take for granted, not even recognize. Mm-hmm. Americans are notorious for just believing that everything that happens in the United States is the absolute best way humanly possible to do something. Or, like We have our heads so far up our asses. And I love being an American. Don't get me wrong. I love being an American. Yeah. But being, being living out... What's that? You love being Canadian too? Yeah. yeah. So being yeah. outside of the United States has really opened my eyes to some of the things that we just take for granted and that we don't question. And then yeah. the ways that those things shift how we see the world, how we how, that shape our perception of reality and how we are as human beings. And it's the same with Mexico. And so what I talk about in my book is that there's a right now in the United States, in the United States, at least we are experiencing like the perfect storm of shifting demographics and psychology with American citizens, right? So you have a demographic in the United States, which is predominantly working class in the middle of the United States, not college educated, and they've been able, or they're 
family members have been able to build a amazing life working in factory jobs, doing skilled labor without having to get a college degree. They were able to buy houses. They were able to send their kids to college if that's what they want kids wanted to do. And because of globalization, all those jobs went away. And a lot of these folks felt like they were entitled to a certain way of living without having to change their skill set. And I think as entrepreneurs, we are big believers that if I develop the skills and I serve enough people, then I can have anything that I want in this world. But a lot of the people who are not entrepreneurs, the they see things a lot differently. They think that because my parents had it a certain way, I should also have it the certain way, having these specific skill sets. Mm. And so those people see that America is quote unquote being taken away or that all these people are stealing American jobs because of their entitlement mentality. And then in terms of people who are now actually having children, people my age, I'm 42, we grew up, we're the first generation to grow up with this concept of self-esteem. So prior Mm. to the late 1970s, or I should say mid 1970s, early 80s, this word self-esteem didn't really exist. And there's actually a scale. I think it was a psychologist. I can't think of his name, but there was a scale of self-esteem. And so I don't think anybody would argue that self-esteem is not important for child development. I think that everybody would agree that a child should have higher self-esteem. If you have low self-esteem, typically that's going to lead to problems when you're an adult. I think that everybody would agree. The shift came when people started to say, okay, I need to boost my child's self-esteem And instead of trying to help the child boost boost their own self-esteem internally by achievement, like legitimate achievement, by overcoming adversity, people said, okay, instead of that, I'm going to remove obstacles from these kids so that they can have like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. So have these external factors that can then ideally boost a kid's self-esteem. And of course, I think we would agree that doesn't work. No, you need to take your licks. You need to fall down and get back up. And that's truly how self-esteem works. And I'm sure that there's, there's a spectrum because everybody's a little bit different. Uh, But now we have people who never had any adversity in life. They've never had true problems. (laughs) Like the worst thing that could happen to them is that they (laughs) ran out of their flavor of coffee at Starbucks. Is that really the problem? Is that destroying your life? Yeah, I'll tell you. So I had problems when I was a kid. My mom used to beat the shit out of me. It was a very abusive, emotionally and physically abusive childhood between the ages of five and 14. And I remember the day Mm. when the beating stopped. But from the ages of five and 14, I would get the shit kicked out of me religiously. Like it was like a sport Mm -hmm. and I took it and I would I would basically absorb the beatings. And that was how I developed some toughness. And I've gotten lots of therapy about this, but I had to fight to survive. That was my only option. Literally, I had to fight. But with that being said, my after my dad died in 2007, I had a really difficult period dealing with the grief. And I went to therapy and I was able to resolve some of my grief issues. And then in 2012, I got paired up with this kid named Patrick. He's not a kid anymore, but he was 13 at the time. His mom had been battling breast cancer for four years. Imagine that being like nine years old, your mom gets diagnosed with breast cancer. He has a little sister who's three years younger than him. And so he and I get paired up through this charity where I'm like a big brother to him. It's a mentorship program. 
and I was mm-hmm. in LA at the time. So he was in downtown LA and I was by the beach. So every other week I drive out to downtown LA I'd hang out with Patrick. We would have a great time just doing whatever. And uh, part of this program was to just be there for him and to be somebody who understood what it was like to have a parent who was dying of cancer. And it was like an instant friendship because I'm going to be with this kid forever. I made a promise to his mom. I will never leave your son. No matter what happens, always look after your kids. So fast forward to November, right before Thanksgiving in the U.S., because I know Thanksgiving is a different date in Canada, sure. but right before your, Thanksgiving, 20, what's that? This is the year that you met him? Yeah. So we get paired up in June, 20, 2012, oh, okay. November, 2012. And this is the same year I started the agency too. November, 2012, his mom looks at me and says, Hey, I got to talk to you. And it was just one of those things where it's not good. Yeah. I call her up the next day and she says, the doctor says, I'm not responding to my next, my latest round of chemo. And they say, I don't have much time left. So I'm like, what the fuck? This is not supposed to be happening. And so I asked her like, what do you want to do? Do I I feel like we should tell the kids because if this, if you die and they don't know, they're going to be very upset about this. Yeah. So we, the day after Thanksgiving, I drive out. I, and I believe his sister, Samantha's mentor was there as well. And we basically have to tell the kids that their mom's going to die. Wow. He's 13 years old. Yep. It's the hardest conversation I've ever had to have in my life. And I tried to keep it together for him. But then that, that ride home, I just fucking cried my eyes out. I bet. Because you don't want to see a kid go through that. It's not supposed to be like that. Life is not supposed to happen like that. And of course, two weeks later, she died. January, or I'm sorry, December 9th, 2012. And so when I look at my problems and then I look at somebody like Patrick and what he had to go through, I'm lucky. I had 26 years, 362 days with my dad. Yep. So there's always somebody that has it way worse than you. Yep. And it really puts it into perspective when you are exposed to people who have real problems. I thought I had real problems growing up and I did have real problems, but I was very lucky in so many ways. I wouldn't be the person that I am had I not gone through that adversity. Yeah, that's the other part. And it's an un- it's an uncomfortable thing, but it's a whole luxury, luxury, adversity makes men and luxury makes monsters. <laughs> I like that quote. That's a good yeah, one. And it's the sense that it, there's, this, there's a saying I heard it was Chinese, but I don't know if it's Chinese or not, but you can't keep wealth past three generations because the first one comes from poverty, struggles to earn it. The second one witnessed their parents grind and the challenges they face, they respect it and preserve it. And the third one knows nothing but luxury and is so far removed from the behaviors and the principles that got them there, they squander it. And the cycle repeats itself. And that's kind of, I think that's almost like a cycle of life per se. And I'm Mm -hmm. really sorry to hear about Patrick. It's, I dated a girl for six years. She lost her mom when she was 17. She lost her dad when she was 11. And then, Mm -hmm. and I can like, that is so scarring for a child. I think it comes back to what's your why? Like life is short, but at the same time, it's important to be specialized in this world where there's Mm -hmm. so many options for employers and we have to constantly work on our own personal development. So I think this goes back to the person if they're struggling or they're stuck or something, you have to tap into your why. You gave a great tip about getting mentorship, finding a book on that challenge. I recommend people find out about the eight habits, the eight types of critical business success habits. 
to help figure out where they should invest their time, where their bottleneck might be. But maybe you just need to go get a job. That's okay. Like maybe you just need to work a nine to five and make some money. You can still get rich on the side. Like you can, if you invest wisely, if you do the right decisions, if you get involved in the right deals, the best paying job in 2021 was a JPEG collector. A JPEG collector? Yeah, NFTs. Like people, that was the best career. That was the best career, paying career in 2021 was someone buying and selling. Gary V did something like $50 million in a couple of months with NFTs, right? And it's like nobody would have predicted that. I, you go back, it's like 2018, the top 10 out of the top 10 in demand jobs. One was the three, four of them didn't even exist in 2017. Those things like social media manager and all this sort of thing. So you just need to, like you said, a few, unless you have a deep reason why to be an entrepreneur and there's something that you're out on in the world to do as a mission, then maybe it's okay to get a job. Maybe it's okay to do that and then, and have a part-time business type thing or be yeah. involved, partner up with another group, be a, be a team player and someone else's startup. So I'm just trying to tie it all back in because we were talking about yeah, no. challenges and that, and we were, and then we got talking into people's mindset and that sense of entitlement and how a lot of people, like when you talk about these people that worked at the factory and stuff, it's like, they don't have another, they don't know how else to grow their income. So they fight. It's like a family. I've seen it. I've seen it in my friends. I have friends that the, the grandfather makes a bunch of money and the rest of the family, they get good jobs. Like they're a doctor or whatever, but they don't know how to make that kind of money. And so all there is infighting in the family over that inheritance because <laughs> they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to right. do it. So it's when you talk about the factory workers and that, and they, they think they're like, they don't know another way. They don't know another way. So all they could do is fight to preserve the status quo because yeah, they don't oftentimes know it's, it refused to be trained. And I know I'm stereotyping yeah. again, and there's probably some factory worker out there who wants to kick my ass, but there are people out there who just refuse to adapt. Yeah. Uh, and I think if anything, if COVID taught us anything, the people that are going to be successful are the ones who are willing to adapt, to adapt. fast. Yeah. You got to yeah. adapt fast. You can't yeah. think that the world is going to be, kind to you and the world is going to adapt to you you have to adapt to what the market is yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent so now let me ask you so where do you think the future of the digital marketing industry is going i love this question we are essentially in my opinion we are coming into a new stage of evolution for the digital agency industry for the first let's just call it 10 years 10 15 years you actually know we should go back to about 2000. So for the first 20 years, call it, if you were really good at the technology, you had an in, right? You could do things that not many other people could do. And there wasn't a lot of training, at least not like how it is now. There wasn't a lot of training that could get you into the game. Like I'm sure you remember the, what was it? The SEO warrior forum. Like there was all these (laughs) random forums and shit where people would go and like exchange ideas and, Oh, I can buy remnant traffic here. And there was all these kind of like underground ways that you could figure out how to do digital marketing. And like Google AdWords was so cheap back then. Facebook ads wasn't even a thing. YouTube ads wasn't, YouTube wasn't even a thing until YouTube started as a dating site. So many people don't even know YouTube. Yeah, exactly. It was your channel of you. It was a dating site. I'm a male, female looking for between. That's how it started. That's not how it finished. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Exactly. If you wanted to become a quote unquote digital marketer, you had to search the corners of the internet to try and figure this shit out. And then they got to a point where there was all these gurus out there who recognized 
I can make a quick buck. I'm going to teach yep. people how to become digital marketers. I'm going to create a product uh, and I'm going to sell it to them for $2,000 and then ongoing for 500 bucks a month, thousand bucks a month to get access to my genius, which they yep. never really were able to do uh, anything in the first place. Yep. They just could sell to teach you how to do it. Yep. And then you had a flood of all these people come into the industry. And this is when people really started to get ripped off. Because yep. to your average small, medium-sized business owner, they don't know the difference between the scam artist who just watched a Ty Lopez video yesterday and somebody yep. who's been doing this for decades, yep. for more than 10 years. To, to the average business owner, it all looks the same. Yep. This person just happens to be priced cheaper, so they would go with the cheaper idiot solution, the, the guru trainee. Yep. And of course, the guru trainee can't do anything, and then they end up ripping off the customer. Yep. And what does the guru trainee have to lose? They just close their business and then they go back to living in mom's basement. Like it's not a yep. huge problem for them. They can continue doing what it is that they were doing before. Meanwhile, yep. the business owner now has a very bad taste in their mouth. Yep. And this happened millions of times over across the whole entire world, but especially in the United States and Canada. Yep. So now literally every small and medium-sized business out there has been ripped off by a digital marketing agency. So yep. what do you think that does to the reputation of our industry? Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. People do not respect marketing agencies. They think that we're all scumbags. They think we're all just, it's all smoke and mirrors. We never get results. This is where COVID came in and actually thinned out the herd and helped mm. repair our industry. So mm. in 2020, when COVID hit, everybody who didn't have a solid business went under very quickly or they went under yep. within the first few months. Yeah, The ones who could actually get results and where a business could justify, Hey, if I give this guy 2000 bucks a month, he gives me back 10,000. Those folks thrived. So the agencies yep. that can actually get results and know what they're doing, they exploded. Yep. Now it's great for the industry and it's great for the people that can get results for clients and the folks that are left. What happened then is that, you know, our biggest expense in the digital marketing world is typically labor. Now, so as these agencies grew and they started to get more orders because Joe businessman was like, holy crap, that agency stuff that the guy was telling me, I need to get my business online and start generating leads. I can't open my doors. I need his services or her services now. So the demand went through the roof for agency services for folks that could get results. And so then those agencies needed to staff up. There's only a certain amount of people that can actually do the work. Yeah. So the supply of talent started to shrink. Right. And so bigger enterprises, bigger agencies started coming in and they started offering crazy money to these people. Mm. Somebody that you were paying 45000 a year to in the States two years ago. They're getting $80,000 now and signing bonuses to go for these bigger, to go work for these bigger companies. That's crazy. So this is what's happening in the industry is that bigger agencies who have better margins and more budget are coming in and they're stealing your people. They're taking away, they're recruiting away your people. And it, you as an agency owner, if you're a mid-sized agency, let's just say half a million to 5 million, if you don't have really good margins now, you won't be able to replace that person that gets recruited away because to replace them, it's not going to cost you 45 grand. It's now going to yeah. cost you 70 grand minimum. Plus the bonus. 
plus the bonus because you, you, you don't you have the budget. You don't have the margin to be able to pay for those folks. Yeah. So this is where the opportunity comes in. If you are open-minded enough and you're able to look for talent in hidden places, right? Yeah. Because there is so much opportunity to tap into places like Mexico, like South America, like Peru, like Colombia, like Argentina, like Brazil, like Nicaragua. And I'm speaking specifically to those countries because they're on the same time zones as the United mm -hmm. States and Canada. Mm -hmm. If you can look there, you can find people for amazing rates. They're going to allow you to keep your in-house staff that are your A players. You can pay them more. And then you can basically create that budget by having other roles filled by people in other countries. And if COVID taught us anything about communication, it's that it really does not matter where anybody is located. As long as we're able to communicate during normal hours, during normal game time hours, we can get anything done with anybody around the world. Yep. That is the huge opportunity. And that is where the agency is going. The agency industry is going. Labor mm -hmm. costs are going up. Bigger enterprise companies and bigger agencies are going to continue to take out people from your agency. So you need to have uh, great margins already so that if there's A players on your team that you want to keep, that you need to keep, you have the budget readily available to give that person a bonus and raise their salaries. All yeah. the other seats, it's time to start looking in other places where you can cut that labor cost by 50, 70% without compromising on the quality one bit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, the part that's really important. As long as language isn't a barrier, it's really about merit. It's not about, you don't necessarily get what you pay for. Yeah, you don't. Like, let me give you some, just throwing out some numbers. And these are people that, you know, like my numbers. So obviously like I mark up anybody that we staff for agencies, but we've got full stack developers working for agencies in the United States that are between 3,500 and 4,000 bucks a month. They speak yeah. English, they work their asses off. They can travel to the United States if you need them to travel. They'll do anything. They care about your clients. They will sacrifice. Yep. They will do whatever it takes to help you and your customers be successful. Yep. Those same full stack developers in the US are anywhere from $150 to $200,000 a year plus salaries. And you get the bonus of entitlement mentality and uh, having to babysit. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. tell, me, tell me it doesn't make sense to try and find, to, to augment your team with staff overseas. It, just, oh, it, it, it makes sense. Business-wise, company culture-wise, it just makes sense. And for people that are kind of like buy American, here's the unfortunate reality about this is that if you don't do it, your competitors will to crush you. And that, that's, again, where it comes down to a meritocracy. It's about what result can you deliver your customers and who can do it for them. And the person that can afford to pay the most per customer wins. The person who can afford to pay the most to their staff, to pay the most in advertising, to pay the most to get the work done wins. That's just really it. Yep. If you can deliver a higher quality outcome for the same price or better, you win. That's yep. it. Everybody wants, yeah. Markets, it's hard to define excellence, but markets respond to excellence typically, assuming there's no crony capitalism involved. So it's right. about being as excellent as possible, which is giving the best outcome for the best price, giving the maximum value. 
you know, and part of that is also being seen. So a lot of people say good marketing can, good marketing can sell a non-existent product when bad marketing can't give away free gold. And that's true, but that's also still part of the outcome is finding the people who need the help, finding yep. people who need, that's the real function of marketing. The real function yep. of marketing is not necessarily if you're in politics to brainwash people, but <laughs> if you're in a business, it's to identify people in need yep. and to help them identify, help cons- consult them through it help them see what's possible, overcome their self-doubt, all that other stuff, the fear of being burned again, all that other stuff. That's a great answer. Now, I want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on the top of the hour, but... Dude, we can keep going if you want. I don't... My wife just texted me. She's going to get a massage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have anything to do. But yeah, whatever. Whatever you have available to, because I know you're... What do you think some of the greatest mistakes your clients and other business owners are making? You already talked about now about talent. We talked about... We talked a lot about a lot, but you say that you do a lot of coaching the agencies. What are the specific greatest mistakes that you see them making? Yeah, this is another really good question. So I got to drop this in here first. Like what I was getting to in uh, with your last question is essentially like talent is more important than technology in the second mm-hmm. evolution of running an agency. Part mm-hmm. of that talent is you as the owner becoming a, a better CEO. Like mm-hmm. we could go years not having to worry about margin or figuring out how to properly do our accounting. And like, we were just kind of, it was wild west. We were just getting clients. We were making money. We were pocketing money. We didn't have to know about leadership and all these other non-sexy parts of running an agency. That's gone. Those days are over. We have to learn how to run the business. And this is the number one reason why agency owners don't make good money and why agencies in general are not worth dick. It's because we do not manage our gross margin. (laughs) And I'm fully guilty of this too. Most people think that if I sell it for a thousand bucks and I get the work done for 500 bucks, then $500 goes to my pocket and I'm rich. That is not the case. You have to do things like (laughs) time tracking. We have to look at our profitability for every single customer. We have to look to make sure that we're fully staffed and that we're delivering what we promised to deliver to the clients and that we're not churning out customers like crazy. We have to manage the expectations of the clients. But going back to the number one reason why agencies are not making money is because they're spending too much to complete those deliverables. So for example, if you go out there and you sell a website, and you charge $10,000, your objective is not to get that website completed and out the door for $5,000. Your objective is to get that website completed and out the door for $3,000. We want to see you spend around 30% of that revenue on production labor. That's going to be the biggest cost of goods that you will have. And it's the number one thing that if you're not making money, that's typically where you're going wrong. Because if you can't solve that problem, everything else, there's just not enough money left over for everything else. Yeah. And here's a scenario that I think will resonate with a lot of people because it happened to me many times over the many years, but where we have the best sales month of our life. I remember this specifically, like I sold probably 20 new clients in a month back when I ran my agency and I'm like feeling so good. And like, I'm like, we're rich and I'm going to get a bonus. I'm going to be able to bonus myself out and and then my partner at the time who ran our finances, I was like, sweet. So how much do we make? He's like, no, we broke even. I'm like, how the fuck is that fucking possible, man? 
I just sold my ass off. I closed the deal every freaking day. How is there no money left over? How is there not a thousand dollars to just give me a bonus? And it's because we weren't managing the gross margin. We weren't managing hours. We weren't making sure that if we sold it for a thousand, that we were getting it done for a, for $300. Yep. I just didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. Now looking back, I can recognize all of my mistakes. So that is the single biggest mistake that agency owners are making. And half of them don't even know what they're spending on these projects. I, I would say it's good that you're looking at the numbers, but a lot of agencies just, I spend this much on labor and I have this much revenue. So my gross margin is this. They don't, they're not able to get more granular and mm. figure out what clients are actually eating up the majority of your ability yes. to take on more projects. Because yeah, it's typically, let them go. Let them go. it's usually one or two customers that are eating up so much bandwidth that yep. are taking so much of your employees' time that are literally pissing off all your staff. Yep. And then when you sell more projects, they're, because of those one or two clients, your team is, we don't no have worries. capacity. Then you yep. got to go out and you got to find a contractor to do it. They're going to cost you more money. They screw up your margins. Maybe that client cancels because this contractor that you found doesn't know how to operate within your system. Yep. It all goes back to managing that gross margin. And you better be yep. able to tell me to the penny how much you made on every single client that you brought in. Do you ever watch those restaurant makeover shows or the bar yep. rescue shows? Yeah. And they, like, they always go to the owner and they say, oh, you're selling that hamburger. I'm going to do my John Taffer impression. You're selling a hamburger for $5. How much did it cost for you to get it done? And the owner looks at them with a blank stare and is like, I have no idea. It's the same thing in our business. Mm. If you're going out and you're selling something for two grand, I want to know exactly how much money you made off of that last month. For every single customer, you have to manage, you have to monitor it that granularly. Mm. This is what it takes to run a successful agency from 2022 and beyond. We have to get good at running the business, Mm. talent over technology all day long. And that Mm. includes you, Mr. or Miss CEO. You have to live in, you have to grow into that CEO role so that you can actually run the business. Yep. I love this. Now I started earlier. I want to go through the eight factors that we found. I call them the critical success habits, Mm -hmm. but that's because you just hit on that right now. Cause a lot of people that might've been surprised to them. Wow. Managing gross, managing gross margin, how important that would be. And I want to explain, cause then when you're getting started first, you have to worry about your self-efficacy and the team and right Mm -hmm. with that, then strategic planning, because that's the second factor. You don't want to be selling fax machines in the era of the internet. It's a faulty business plan. Then the next is market intelligence. So you need to know what people want, why they want it, what the other people are, what the competitors are offering. Then you have marketing strategy. That's how you plan to reach these people at a cost, cost effectively and at scale. And then sales strategy and skills. Because if you're not closing deals and then money management and all that first, those first five are all about being able to run a machine that can produce a result, that can find people, can convince them to trust you with your money, that make sure that you know the out- promised outcome that you're going to deliver for them and, del- and convince them to sign the dotted line and send over the check. And then it comes into money management and then operate business operations and then business intelligence. These are the eight factors that we found. These are the umbrella categories that we felt that everything else could fit into. Because there was there's people that did meta-analyses and they came out with supply chain management is a critical success factor for business. But that's only if you're in manufacturing or textile or if you have a drop shipping company. That doesn't apply 
to everybody, right? Supply chain management isn't really an issue for a digital marketing agency per se, but supply chain management fits into business operations, right? Your hiring mm -hmm. process, your meeting rhythms, your legal compliance, all that fits into business operations and money management. Like you're saying there, having the margins to keep people on board, having all that's, I think a money management thing. So for people that are listening, my, what I would advocate is that whatever you're doing, wherever you feel you're stuck, just hearing these eight, often people can feel where they're strong and where they're weak. And to take a look and see, is that your bottleneck? If you're listening to this and Chris is telling you to manage your gross, your, manage your gross margins, if you know that, first off, if you know who your problem clients are, fire them, right? You need your standard <laughs> service offering. And if these people are sucking up all your resources, let them go, double down on your marketing and sales, replace them with better clients. It'll be yep. the best thing you ever did. Best thing yep. you ever did. And that's something you got to constantly keep doing. There's a term called RFM, recency, frequency, monetary value. And if you sort your customer databases by RFM, it's easily Googleable, you can take the top 20%. And that's the whole concept is a Pareto principle. Like 80% of your results come from 20% mm -hmm. of your effort. You can do this mm -hmm. with staff. You can do it with social media engagement. You can do it with ads. You can do it with clients. You can do it with everything. And do that with your client database and model all your marketing and sales to attract more of your top 20% for your RFM that are producing 80% of the value. And you can get rid of everybody else and you'll be fine. Don't do that before you get the marketing and sales up in place. But I wanted to share that because I got started with it. And then we went on a tangent. I know there's some people that were like, what were the other eight? Or what were the other seven? <laughs> and so those are the eight. Self-efficacy, strategic planning, market intelligence, marketing strategy, sales strategy and skills, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. And this came out of $50,000 spent hiring seven different research teams all over the planet to go through all the studied, published literature, and all the management journals, all of academia, who all the people that already tried to do systemic reviews and meta-analyses on what is the science say, because that's why I did it. People were asking, what is the science? Everyone's debating about what does the science say about this, that. I was like, well, what does the science say? Because exactly you said, the sharks. I knew when I heard about everybody like the, everyone being laid off, everyone changing career. I knew a lot of people were going to be starting business. And when you talked about all those artists, the only thing that they knew how to sell was more programs. When I was living in San Diego, I went to a couple of different parties with some supposed gurus. And I was so shocked because they were talking at this barbecue and it was like, hey man, I'm not going to say any names, but hey man, you're up next week. And I was like, what do you mean he's up next week or next month? Sorry. And it was, they were just wrote to, these guys had massive followings and they were just promoting each other's yep. programs. And it wasn't even like the yep. program got results. It was just, hey, you're in line to have a box to sell. Yep. And when people and I watched this roll out and I saw people complaining and it was like this nobody who bought it didn't get results. And the guru's friend saying, it's not my program. It's the fact you didn't do well. And right. And creating that doubt on the person. Yeah. And it's like, how do you compete with that? How do you compete with that? When there's eight guys, all that are all like when there's League of Elite and there are fancy cars and all this telling you that this is what's good and what's right. And that just made me disgusted. I didn't want to have anything to do with that. So uh, yeah. I'm all but the best. About. Yeah. The other horrible part of that is they're like, oh, you know what? You need to buy XYZ's course yeah. and then that will fix that problem. That'll fix that problem. Even it's just like this incestual ripoff like ring yeah. <laughs> that just it went was... on for years and years. And yeah. I hate government like intervention into business. I hate regulations. But it just got out of hand and actually yeah. it, it adjusted itself with COVID. So like a lot of those, you don't see, or maybe I'm just not in the right algorithm anymore, but you don't see a lot of those scammy guru ads anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, there, there's some people that came up, but I think because COVID's gone on so long, I think a lot of them have disappeared. disappeared. They've shifted.
did. So a lot of them have moved on to crypto and NFTs mm. and those types of things. Yeah, I, remember- I kind of have a theory. I have a theory about when there's a bubble or kind of like a scam. It's in my theory is that when the emphasis or when the value proposition is more on what you're going to personally make yes. as opposed to how you're going to help other people, yes. that's when that's shit's flag. unbalanced. That's yeah. a red flag for sure. That's a huge risk. You know, and you saw it in the mortgage industry as well in 2008, where you had all these mortgage people that were bragging about how much money they were making. And aren't mm. you actually supposed to be helping people get a home? Mm. Like, mm. Where, where's your sense of obligation to your customers? It was yeah. just like, there was none. They were just like, nah, I'm just getting people cheap loans. Yeah. And then it crumbled. So it's, that's what happened to our industry too, in many ways. But now we're, first, it's a good thing. Let me ask this, since you're seeing so many people, what are the, what are some of the fundamentals that these these digital marketing agencies that have had the success because you see so many of them because mm-hmm. your staff are working in their companies yep. is there what are the strategies that are working is there anything as we wrap up this call are there any thoughts that you could share on that on what is it about channel specific is it case, leading with case study specific it's tough i don't want to get too tactical but well, just in that like what separated the ones that weren't getting results from the ones that were Yeah, no, this is a really good question. And if you're running a successful digital agency right now, it's probably just going to give you validation that you're doing the right things. But the number one is getting results for customers. Like selling digital agency services in theory is like the easiest thing possible. If you're really good at getting getting your clients results, meaning AKA helping them to make more money, like you do that for enough people, they're going to tell all their friends and those people are going to tell all their friends. You don't even have to advertise. Maybe you go to a trade show once a year, but it's, Hey, again, I'm going to charge you 2000 bucks. And on average, at the end of the year, I'm going to help you make 150 to $200,000 a year. Does that sound good to you? Oh, guaranteed your money back. Does that sound good to you? Absolutely. Take my money. Right. If somebody, if somebody's listening to this right now and they can guarantee that they're going to add a million dollars revenue by the end of the year. And I'm talking like good business for me, I'll give you a hundred thousand bucks right now. Yeah. I'll cut you a check. No problem. Yeah. So getting results is paramount to running a successful agency. If you cannot get clients results, you're not going to keep customers. It's just that it's that simple. So Mm -hmm. getting results is the number one thing. Most of our agencies that are successful financially, the agencies are in a niche. Usually Mm -hmm. that's industry specific, but it can be technology too. Infusionsoft was an example of this. When Infusionsoft came out, there were Infusionsoft agencies that only specialized in Infusionsoft. They specialized in the technology they didn't necessarily specialize in the vertical. Um, yeah. You can do both. It makes it a lot easier, but that's another yeah. one. And then the numbers side of it. So like making sure that you have healthy margins, that the business is healthy. So you do need profit, whether or not you're reporting that profit to the government at the end of the year, that's, that's your prerogative. <laughs> I, I don't care how you use that money, but you need to be able to show a potential buyer or an investor that you have profit. If you have at least 30% net income as an agency, you're running a pretty good business. That's what we want to see with our agencies. It's also something that we help them out with as well, but we want to see them run a healthy business. And then I think also the other thing is that healthy agencies, businesses that are successful, the agency owner is also making good money. And I think this is something that we, we don't, we definitely don't talk about it, but it's important you know, it's okay to grind it out and not make, not pay yourself a lot of money to a point. 
you personally need to be making good money. There's, and it's not just because you can go out and buy cool shit, or hopefully you would take some of that money and invest it in things that are going to create more passive income for you. But there's just like an, a, there's a confidence level that comes along with making good money where you're not embarrassed by the business. You're not embarrassed by what you do. You feel better about yourself in many ways. You're able to contribute mm-hmm. more to charity. Like we donate mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars to charity. We don't really talk about it that much, except on this podcast. But we donate tens of thousands of dollars away to charity because that's important to me. That makes me feel better as a person. And so it's very important that you guys and gals out there are making a good income. And to me, anything above $250,000 a year is a pretty good income. Like you can start, me and my buddy were talking the other day and we did an analysis. Like you can truly build financial freedom if you're netting $250,000 a year. Like you can start making some really good investments. You can start building a life for yourself and you can start leveraging this agency to build true wealth. And that's, I think that's important to most agency owners, but it's not just about that to me. It's there, there's a psychological element to it. And as you start to to make more money, then you, life just gets better. This isn't rocket science. I'm not the first person to say that it just gives you more options. Yeah. And so I think those are the elements that all the successful agency owners have is one is, what was the first one that I said? You said getting results for customers. Getting results for clients. Yes. Getting results for that, clients. The one that I like was having an, a specific niche. I thought that niche, was so good yeah. because I know people that have got like, it's that, it's why I said standard service offering before. Cause they see it where they're just, they're doing, they do it, but they do it for everybody. There's riches mm-hmm. and niches, bitches. And yep. you, something you said as a side comment that I thought was good was you said tech and industry is actually better than just an industry. It can be yep. better. You mentioned like an Infusionsoft agency that does Infusionsoft for blank, for whatever, for dentists, for whatever. Mm-hmm. That's I know a guy, he does that. He does Infusionsoft for life coaches, but he positions it like in the opposite. So they're an agency, but he owns, this is just a unique business model to share. He owns everyone's list. So when they come to work for him, he owns their list and he does, they do a base plus performance and then he basically is cross-selling on the back end everybody else's stuff. So you come in and they've got, we've, we'll build out all your systems. We'll do all your marketing. We'll guarantee we'll get you this much in sales and revenue because we're doing it all. We've got the webinar mm-hmm. slides. we got everything for you. You just need to show up, be the singing and dancing bear, and then deliver when people buy and make sure they're happy. And yep. so they do that. And then when all the, but then all the leads that they're building the leads that don't buy all that stuff, they're using those for all their other clients in the roster as well in the back end. It's like an affiliate model, you might say. It's Mm -hmm. specifically targeted industry tech platform and niche, which anyways, that's just, that when you just said it as a side comment, but I just remember that guy and I was like, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I'll just add one more thing on there. This is actually a big thing, but these successful agencies have amazing people. We talked about this early earlier. Yeah. You can still lose with a great team, but you will never yeah. win with a bad team. I'm sorry. Yeah. This is yeah. not the bad news bears. That doesn't happen. And even yeah. they had the one superstar, but you yeah. need amazing people. And that means different things to different companies because different companies have different company cultures, yeah. but you need great people. You need people that can come in and help you make decisions and that could solve problems that you're not good at solving yourself. 
Yeah. And I'm so blessed that I have an amazing team. And specifically, I have an amazing leadership team that see things that I don't see mm-hmm. and that present ideas that I would have never come up with on my own. Mm-hmm. I would not be where we are if it weren't for Aaron, who's my head of customer experience. If it weren't for Oyuki, who's my wife, who runs HR and our finance. And for David, who runs our operations, who runs yeah. the entire, all, we have 98 employees right now. I think almost well over 80 of those people are on the operations and fulfillment side. And he helps to manage all those folks. He's got a couple other managers underneath him. But those people, my gosh, like we would not be anywhere where we are today. We wouldn't have won the awards. We wouldn't have been able to blow it out of the water for our agency clients, helping mm. them make millions of dollars. We wouldn't have been able to do any of that. We wouldn't have been able to give all this money to charity. Yep. Had it not been for these individuals and uh, they should have quit on me a long time ago, many times over because I was an asshole, <laughs> but they stuck with me somehow. I got them to stick around. And now like they're, we're helping to make so many people's dreams come true. And it, it totally comes down to them. That's such a great note. Let's wrap it up on there. If people want to learn more, if they want to follow you, they can get your book, Never Wear Pants Again. And what else can they do? How else do they reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll actually give you my book for free. Just go to neverwearpantsagain.com. You can just put in your email. I'll give you the PDF version. If you want to go to Amazon, you want to buy it, by all means, go ahead. I'll donate the, the proceeds to my favorite dog and cat charity. But if you want to learn more about our business, so if you're an agency, you're in that half a million and up range and you're just stuck and you want somebody that'll help you to solve these people problems, the process problems. That's like exactly what we do. We have a thing called the dude way. It's like our four-step system to help you increase your profitability. And of course, if we do take you on as a client, we guarantee that you'll grow your profitability by 30% in one year or you don't pay. Nobody has that type of guarantee. Like we used to be like, we were the outsourcing dudes or the white label dudes, but now we've taken it to the next level and it's like, outsourcing. That's a great offer. That's a great offer. So anyways, you can just go to dudeagency.io to check that out. And if nothing else, just go listen to our podcast. Daryl, I'm going to have to have you on my podcast, by the way, but we always talk about the non-sexy side of running an agency. What are the KPIs that you need to have on your customer experience team? What are the KPIs that you should have on your operations team? How do you hire what are the signs or what are the, what I just released a new episode. It's five ways or five things that can kill your agency in 2022. We very rarely talk about sales. It's all this non-sexy stuff that, as I mentioned before, will make or break your business in 2022. So you can go to our website and just listen to our podcast for free. Of course, I'd love it if you subscribe to my podcast too, but we put out a lot of good content and it's, it's mainly because running a marketing agency is so fucking hard. You guys are not making enough money and you deserve to make more. And so anything that I can do to empower you guys to go out and bring your dreams to life through your agency, you have me on your side. I've been there. I've been doing this for over a decade. I know how hard it can be. And it's time that we rebuild our reputation as an agency and get clients results. And then in the end, also you guys deserve to make a lot more money. So now I'm done with my soapbox. (laughs) I love that. Chris, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I know there's been so much value in here and thank you so much for coming and sharing with us. Thank you, Daryl. Have a good one.